You know, when you think about some of the best teams in sports history, what comes to your mind? There we go. Thank you. I'm representing here 2008 Gators. Yes. Patriots. What else did I hear? Steelers. What was that? 1913 Cubbies. Actually had my notes, the 1927 Yankees, so that will go right there with that one. How about the 1972 Dolphins, the only team to go undefeated in the NFL? Cowboys. Cowboys, yeah. <laughs> yeah, all right. Brazil, all right, there we go, soccer team. How about 1992 Dream Team, basketball team? That was a, that was a famous one, 90s Bulls. Yeah, there's a, lots, of, uh, lots of teams when you think about great teams. You know, a lot of them even had nicknames that went along with them. You think about some of those nicknames like the Steel Curtain from the Steelers or the Monsters of the Midway with the Bears or the Greatest Show on Turf or, you know, all these different, Murder's Row, all of these different ones of uh, great nicknames that went along with these teams. We're going to look at one of the best teams in all of ancient history today. And uh, we'll look in 2 Samuel chapter 23 is where we'll find our passage. And this is a story about some ordinary guys whose reputations grow in heroic proportions because of the way they live their lives. They're not just men. They are men's men. This team is forever remembered as, and they got their own nickname, as David's mighty men. This team is forever remembered with that nickname, heroes, forever honored in the hall of faith, the hall of fame of the Bible because of how they handled some very difficult circumstances that we're going to look at today. So what does it mean to be a mighty man? What does God expect from us? Not just men. What does God expect from all believers in the way that we should think and act? Can I suggest to you that there are some principles in the passage that we're going to look at today that aren't the exception but the norm for every believer. So let me give you just a little bit of background. We are in the life of David. We've been in the life of David now for quite a few weeks. But for those of you that have not been with us through this series, let me kind of bring you up to speed to where we are in our passage today. Going back earlier to 1 Samuel, you'll find the story of a young shepherd boy by the name of David who is the last, the smallest, the youngest of seven brothers, relegated to herding sheep, one of the most despised jobs in all of Israel. And one day a prophet named Samuel comes by and tells David's father, Jesse, that one of his sons will replace King Saul as king over Israel. And one by one, Jesse presents his sons to the prophet Samuel. And Samuel says, no, that's not the one. No, not that one. And he gets all the way down and he says, Jesse, do you not have any more sons? And he says, yeah, I've got one more. It's my youngest. He's out in the field with the sheep. Like David was an afterthought even by his dad. And so he comes in and Samuel says, he is the one. Showing us the Lord does not look 
at the things that man looks at. The Lord looks not on the outward appearance, but on the heart. And they got through all of these sons of Jesse to land on David. And we continue on through our story. What we find out is when others saw a shepherd boy, God saw a king. In the coming years, David would be recruited into King Saul's service, first as a musician. And then later he would come and he would slay the famous giant named Goliath. And he'd be put in charge of the armies of Israel and befriend the son of the king, Saul, whose name was Jonathan. And one day after slaying Goliath, he comes home and they are singing, David has, or Saul has killed his thousands and David his tens of thousands. And Saul sees the writing on the wall and begins to try and kill David. But David escapes to the hills. And while he is there hiding out in the hills, trying to stay alive, a band of brothers gather around David. This band of misfits came and joined David while he's hiding in the hills. And this band of misfits would eventually be called his mighty men. But let's look here in 1 Samuel 22 and see how the Bible initially describes these people. It says, David departed from there and escaped to the cave of Adullam. And when his brothers and all of his father's house heard it, they went down there to him. And everyone who was in distress, everyone who was in debt, and everyone who was bitter in soul gathered to him. And he became commander over them. And there were with him about 400 men. Now, this is a really, like, championship team, isn't it? Let me go back and read that. Everyone who is in distress, everyone who is in debt, and everyone who is bitter in soul. Man, what a championship team to have surrounding you. This is who David attracted in the cave there with him. What a great, great team. And here's what we know, just by reading this. David's mighty men were just ordinary people before he was anything and before they were anything. And what made them mighty was the character they gained while hiding in the hills. The lives they lived and the decisions they made while they were with David in the, in the wilderness, installed in them the character and the courage to one day become mighty men. So let's just take a few minutes to make some observations about the decisions that made these guys mighty men and a great team. So let's see how they connect with our lives. Decision number one, and we're going to skip forward here in just a moment, to kind of look back on their lives. But decision number one, I will do what's right even when the odds are against me. I will do what's right even when the odds are against me. 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 8 says, These are the names of the mighty men whom David had. Joshab, Bashabeth, Atakmanite. He was the chief of the three. He wielded a spear against 800 whom he killed at one 
time. Now, you might read that and say, ah, that's just, that's just folklore. Now, what we know about the Bible is, the Bible is always what? It's always true. There's no falsehood. There's no exaggeration in the Bible. So when you read this of Joshua, who killed 800 men with his spear. Wow. We start out with our story with this guy who is like this Braveheart gladiator Rambo all wrapped up into one. That is who this guy is. His name's Joshua, and, and one day he finds himself with insurmountable odds. He's surrounded by 800 men, and he had a decision to make. Stand and fight, or turn around and hightail and run. The possibility of victory seems very remote, and yet he knows that the right thing to do is to stand and fight for his God. Ever been in a place where you knew the right thing to do, but to do so may mean you may not survive. To do the right thing may mean you don't keep your job. To do the right thing may mean some relationships may be severed. History is full of men and women who decided to do what's right, even though it cost them their lives. We find men and women who made the decision to do what's right even when the odds are against them. Maybe today this looks like an employee who sees what's going on behind the scenes or under the table and refuses to be a part of it. It's a spouse who realizes that the other part of this marriage is all but dead but yet does everything in their power to reconcile and bring this marriage back into a right relationship. It's the teen who refuses to go with the flow of the crowd because they know it is against what the God they serve desires them to do. Maybe it's calling a friend to repentance at the risk of losing a relationship. If you're writing anything down, you can write these words down with our first point. You know, decision number one, I will do what's right even when the odds are against me. The word you could summarize this as no retreat. No retreat. You know, I can think uh, maybe our generation has lost some of this a little bit. I think it would be a great exercise for all of us to think through this week and maybe even write down and jot down a few things in your life as it's related to your spiritual life, that you will not retreat. You will stand there in the gap, like Joshua, even though the odds may be against you, and you will do what is right. No retreat. The second decision we're going to see here is, I will not give up even when no one stands with me. I will not give up even when no one stands with me. 
You know, I need some, some help with this one. Luke, come on up here for a second. Luke's going to help me out. All right. So I've got this weight here. This is simulates about what it would be to have a sword, a strong, steady sword back in the day. So Luke's going to stand here. He's going to hold it here like he's wielding a sword. That's about 30 pounds there. A good, nice, long sword was heavy. And so Luke's going to stand there. We're going to see how long he can, he can wield that sword for us just for a few moments. Don't drop it. Okay. Hang on. If you need to, like, move it around a little bit, you can do that. All right, let's read. Let's read about our next guy of David's mighty men. And next to him, among the three, was Eleazar, the son of Dodo, son of Ahoy. He was with David when they defied the Philistines who were gathered there for battle. And the men of Israel withdrew. He rose and struck down the Philistines until his hand was weary and his hand clung to the sword. And the Lord brought about a great victory that day and the men returned after him only to strip the slain. What scripture was saying there, he wielded that sword so long, his muscles had gotten so tight around that sword that they basically had to pry his fingers off the handle of that sword. It's getting there. All right. So David, here's the story. So David and his fighting men prepared for battle. Remember who these guys are. What do we read about at the beginning? They were distressed. They were discontent. They were in debt. They were not military men. And David gives his, probably his best brave heart speech to his men as his lifelong arch rivals the Philistines gather. And once again, David's army is outnumbered. And when the, the men see it, their hearts melt and they run away. And David looks around and realizes that he's not alone. He's got one other man that's standing there with him. Eleazar is standing there. Eleazar stood his ground with his sword in hand ready to go. Now as a leader, I love that. I love that. This is an issue of loyalty. Once again, the, the odds are against him. And yet there is something about facing a foe together. About not being alone when you have someone there, that synergy together that makes two more than one. And the text says that God met them on the battlefield that day and gave them a great victory. But it wasn't immediate. The battle must have gone on for a long, long time. Speaking about that, how's it going? You, you hanging on? Oh, I'm not done yet. Uh, yeah. You have to think, how long was the Eleazar was holding on to that sword? Yeah. Well, that was, that was uh, yeah, no, no. So it lasted a long time. We see that sometimes God causes the enemy to fall without any action. Sometimes it's just through prayer and waiting on God. We see when the Israelites left Egypt. The armies of Pharaoh followed them. 
And Moses took his staff, and the waters parted, and they walked across. The nation of Israel walked across on dry ground. And once they got to the other side, Moses dropped his arms, and the waters fell, destroying Pharaoh and his army. And Jericho, they walked around the walls for seven days. On the seventh day, they shout, and the walls fall. When Gideon leads the Israelite army against the Midianites, God reduced the troops from 32,000 down to 300. And when they encountered the enemy, those 300 troops blew their trumpets and the enemy, God wiped out the enemy. They knew the battle belonged to the Lord. But in this story, they have to fight. They have to fight holding a sword. And they fight for so long that Eleazar was exhausted. He fought so fiercely with that sword in his hand that his fingers would not let go. How's your fingers doing? They're getting there. They're getting there. They had to pry it off of his hand. And here's where we want with this one. We said with the last one, we said if you want to look at the words, no retreat, we want this one to be no reserve. God loves it when we give it all for his cause. When we hold nothing back. Scripture says we are to love the Lord, the God, with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength. That our lives are to be a living sacrifice. That our lives are not our own. That our lives have been bought with a price. No Reserves. It says that God rewards a persevering faith, a faith that keeps believing, a faith that keeps fighting, that keeps trusting that God will show up. And when all of our energy is gone, that God shows up. All right, Luke, you can put you can put it down. You can put it down. (laughs) All right, you guys give Luke a hand. All right, so that was our second decision. We learned about Eliezer. Third decision, I will stand in the gap for the rest of the team. I will stand in the gap for the rest of the team. Let's read what the rest of this passage says. And next to him was Shammah, the son of a G, the Herorite. The Philistines gathered together at Lehi, where there was a plot of ground full of lentils, And the men fled from the Philistines. There seems to be a theme here. The Philistines come. The nation of Israel is there for battle. They see the Philistines and they flee. We keep seeing this in this story. But Shammah, we see here, he took his stand in the midst of the plot and defended it and struck down the Philistines. And the Lord worked a great victory. He said, I'm going to stand here in this field. I'm going to stand here in the gap for the team. Now, this wasn't a great team. Obviously, we saw that these men were in debt, they're distressed, all of these things, and we can see that by the way they showed up on the battlefield. Every time they were met with adversity, the team fled. They fled. But we have Shammah here who stood his ground. You say, why to protect a field? We see it was a field of lentils. 
There are plenty of fields, but Shama's motivation, no doubt, was probably honorable. It wasn't just a field. It says he was trying to perfect, protect a field of lentils. It's the field where the Israelites would harvest to make their bread the food they need for survival. If he were to walk away from the fight, he knows that many would probably lose their life from hunger. So beside this one, we're going to write, no regret. No regret. In everyday life, it would be things like taking care of the less fortunate. Maybe it's taking care of the widow down the street. Maybe it's seeing a child in your friend group or in your neighborhood or on your street that is missing a parent and stepping in to that gap to provide love and care. Or seeing a child in our church making mistakes and refusing to stay out of their life because you know where that road leads. We have a good group of high school and middle school students in this church that need the wisdom, the love, that the adults sitting out here can speak into their life. It's stepping into the gap to speak that truth into their life. It's volunteering to serve your church family here at Bethel. That's the stuff that a team does together. Here's what I know. No good performed for the sake of others is forgotten by God. And you and I have the opportunity to live a life of no reserve, no regret, and no retreat. Final decision is, I will devote my life to the one who is above me. I will devote my life to the one who is above me. Let's keep reading here. And three of the 30 chief men went down and came about harvest time to David at the cave of Adullam when a band of the Philistines was encamped in the valley of Raphim. David was then in the stronghold and the garrison of the Philistines was then at Bethlehem. And David said longingly, oh, that someone would give me water to drink from the well of Bethlehem that is by the gate. Remember, where is David from? David's from Bethlehem. He's thinking, man, I just want some of that good home-cooking food is essentially what he's saying. He goes, I want some of that good, fresh water from the well of Bethlehem is what he is desiring. He's probably just thinking this, saying this out loud as kind of a yearning as he's standing there amongst his men. Man, what I would give right now for just some water from Bethlehem. He probably just said something like that in passing. Then the three mighty men broke through the camp of the Philistines and drew water out of the well of Bethlehem that was by the gate and carried and brought it to David. But he would not drink of it. He poured it out to the Lord and said, Far be it from me, O Lord, that I should do this. Shall I drink the blood of the men who went at the risk of their lives? Therefore he would not drink it. These things the three mighty men did. Now this is not a story about a boss who demands his men to risk their lives for his comfort. That is not what we find here. It is a picture of a life of devotion to the one who has authority over them. 
under his leadership, they had gone from distress, indebted, discontents to mighty men. He enabled them to live for something bigger than themselves, and, he, and it made them better men. His leadership over their lives had changed them because they had lived a life of no reserve, no regret, and no retreat for the one in authority over them. To the point where, at this point in their lives, no request or desire was too small for them to give it their all. They saw what David had done for their lives. They saw how their character had changed and God made them into men who revered him. So when David just speaking out of a yearning of his heart, not even asking them, they said, we'll go do it. We'll do it. No desire is too small for them to give it their all. In the Bible, Jesus is called the Son of God, but he's also called the Son of David. A thousand years after David was gone, Jesus shows up on the scene and he invested his life in the ragtag band of distress and indebted discontents who fumbled and bumbled their way through life. His disciples. And what a group of just idiots. <laughs> when you read in the Gospels, they are. And God through Jesus, took those disciples, these everyday Joes like you and I, and made them into mighty men. And he wants to do that in your life today. You see, when they met Jesus, he changed everything for them. Jesus changes everything. Say that back to me. Jesus changes everything. When we meet him, he takes us from what we were to what we are now in Christ. They watched as their leader lived a life of no reserve, no regret, no retreat, dying on the cross for them and for us, and it turned their world upside down. They went from this, this group of bumbling idiots to a group of men who turn the world upside down. You and I are here today because of their lives of no reserve, no regret. Today, Jesus is still doing it. He is calling to his side every distress, indebted, discontent, and calling them to live a life of no reserve, no regret, and no retreat. You know, Pastor Jay will have us sing this song from time to time out of Micah chapter 6, verse 8. And I really think this song is our team's playbook. 
when you look at Scripture. It says, He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love kindness, and to walk humbly with our God? That is what we are to do. That is no reserve, no regret, no retreat. Let our lives live in honor of the one who gave his life for us. Jesus changes everything. Do you know him? Do you know him as your Lord and Savior? If not, let today be your day of salvation. Let's pray.